Uh, okay, we should pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather, Lord, for people to, uh, to log in online and to consider, Lord, uh, certainly the privilege is all these things. We think of where things were last year at this time, and, um, and so, Lord, we thank you that sort of this corner is being turned, and, and we're heading in that uh, appropriate direction that we all desire. But most significantly, Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of your son. We, we are convinced, we're certain of the reality that the entire Christian faith would be meaningless if there were no resurrection of your son. And so, Lord, in, a, in sort of a concerted way this morning, we, we turn our attention to the reality of the resurrection and the impact that it has uh, on every one of us. Father, as Josh prayed, we pray for those that don't yet know you. They have not yet come to the place of salvation. And we pray this morning that your grace would sort of bring them over that line and that today would be their day of salvation. And Father, for those of us that have walked with you for a period of time, maybe a long period of time, Lord, I pray that your grace today and the wonder of your grace would impact our hearts in a way most unexpected, but good and true and lasting and eternal. Lord, so bless our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Easter, certainly so. I'm going to make sure you get that in there. Um, and here we are today. As a group of believers, we're doing what people all over the world have begun doing 10, 12 hours ago, depending on where they live, and will continue to do throughout this next 10, 12 hours, and that is celebrate the resurrection of Christ. So important for us to do. Now, certainly, we're mindful of it, we're aware of it, of course, but it's good for us to take some time each year to really just focus our attention in on the reality that there is a tomb that is empty, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And we celebrate that, obviously, when we come. And we spent this last week, uh, many of us, uh, last week when we came together on Sunday morning, we looked at the triumphal entry and the, the events that occurred in the few days that followed the triumphal entry. On, we were together on Good Friday, and we looked at the betrayal and the arrest and the crucifixion uh, of our Lord. Many of us during our quiet times this week, we, we sort of spent some extra time, maybe we took a break from our normal devotional time to really just consider uh, the events of what we call Holy Week. And that, I'll be quite honest with you, it's hard for me to do. I don't enjoy, I can't stand the movie The Passion of the Christ anymore. I used to love it. It's just impossible for me, well, that's not true, I'm a wimp, but it's just hard for me to keep watching that and to think of the events that took place during uh, the crucifixion and all that was associated with it. And for those of us that love the Lord dearly, it's hard for us to consider these things, to consider, as Matthew 26 says, that Jesus was in such a, a state of worry, uh, such a state of anxiety, that when he would pray, he would sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, as Matthew 26, 39 says. To sit, think of the fact that he was betrayed, by his own, arrested by the crowd, mocked, that bothers me, beaten, scourged, 
that the trials that he underwent were just a series of sham trials. They weren't even like real trials. Like, what are we doing here? Are we pretending? You know, all these kinds of things. To see these things, to see that he was subjected to the soldiers, that they would, you know, cover his head and hit him, and they'd mock him, and which one of us hit you? They would shove a crown of thorns upon his head, and the pain associated with that. Thorns, eight, nine inches, driving them into his head, laughing at him, mocking him, tying a rope around him as he carried a cross on his shoulders, pulling the rope around his foot, pulling the rope so he falls down and hits his face on the ground with this big, heavy cross coming down on him. You, you read that, you see that in movies like The Passion, and it bothers us. It's troubling. Even if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, even if he wasn't my Lord, even if he wasn't somebody I cared about, I would be bothered by seeing those particular things. And then to know that at any moment in time, he could have stopped all of it. Just blows our mind, doesn't it? You recall when Jesus was on the cross, one of the last words that he said, or a series of words, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the scripture says that he bowed his head and he yielded his spirit. He would say in another place, nobody takes my life from me. I lay down my life. I give my life. At any point in time, you remember when Peter was in the garden with Jesus and Peter wanted to stage sort of a, a breakout for Jesus, get him away from the soldiers. And he takes out a sword, he cuts off one of the soldiers' ears. And Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, stop. He says, don't you think I could call down legions of age, angels right now to defend me? We're reminded of another place in the scripture where Jesus said uh, to his disciples uh, in prayer, actually, he said it to his father. He says, Father, my soul is troubled. He said, well, what am I going to say? Deliver me from this hour. This is the very hour for which I have come. And so Jesus, having complete and total control, the Bible refers to him as the creator of all things and as the sustainer of all things. At any moment in time, Jesus could have put a stop to these things and yet he didn't, because again, this was the reason for why he had come. Such a non-response forces us to ask that question. If he could put a stop to it, why didn't he put a stop to it? Why doesn't he stop the mocking? Why doesn't he stop the barbary that he encounters at the hands of the religious leaders and the political leaders? A couple of weeks ago, we saw on a, on a Sunday morning when we were studying the book of Acts that his disciples referred to him as the absolute ruler, translated in a lot of our versions as the sovereign Lord, but they referred to him as the absolute ruler. Why is it that the absolute ruler allows himself to suffer physically, to suffer emotionally, and I think the greatest suffering that he underwent that day was spiritually, to experience the alienation that you and I experience on a regular basis because of our sin from God and from others, to experience that for the first time from the Heavenly Father. Why doesn't Jesus cry out to his Father as he told Peter he could and put an immediate end to the situation? Well, he doesn't because as John chapter 12, verse 27 tells us, this is the purpose that I have come to this hour. This is the reason why I came. Now that verse is an interesting verse. Because it goes further. Let me read it to you. Verse 27, John chapter 12. It says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Then he adds these words. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus left his place in eternity, 
and he took on the limitations of human form, meaning he allowed himself to suffer emotionally, spiritually, physically, all those things at the hand of wicked men, because in all of that, the character and the heart of God would be revealed in a way that it could not be revealed in any other way. That's what the idea of the word glorify means. It means to lift it up and to magnify it. God could not be glorified. His love, his character, his nature, his heart for us as sinners could not be magnified in any other way as it was with Jesus going to the cross. To the cross. His death magnifies the beauty of God and his love for humanity. His death, not for our, his sins, but for ours brought glory to the Father, and it reveals the heart of God. Romans 5.8 tells us God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't just tell us he loves us. He demonstrates that he loves us. And Jesus endures all that he endures, not for his gain, but for ours. Because we, very important we remember, we were the ones that were lost, and without hope. But as Jesus told another group at another time during his ministry, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save you. When you think of the lost, who do you think of? You. I hope we get that. Me. A lot of times we think of the lost, oh yeah, that guy, man, he's been really going through it. You know, and he's really down and out right now. He's lost. The reality is, my friends, when you think of the loss, you should think of yourself. And so this morning, as we as a church and as the capital C church have turned our attention once more to Jesus's resurrection, I'd like us to focus our attention on the God who seeks and saves the lost. And so if you would, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. While you're turning there, Luke 15, it's one of the more familiar passages of our Bible, though many of us might not be familiar with the address, John 3.16, that's the address and we know the verse as well. You may not be so familiar with the address, Luke 15, but you probably are familiar with the parables that are written in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is a handful of parables that Jesus tells, three different parables, which he tells one right after the other, all designed with the same singular point. Now I'll remind you, a parable was a simple story that was used to illustrate an important moral or spiritual lesson. And Jesus used them frequently in his teaching style. They were designed to be able to explain something to folks so that they could understand it. Jesus wasn't one of these teachers that wanted you walking away saying, wow, that guy was so smart. That guy was brilliant. I have no idea what he said, but boy, it sure was impressive. Jesus wanted his listeners to understand. And so every now and again, he's talking to his listeners. He could see, they're not getting it. And he would say, let me explain it to you by telling you a story. Luke chapter 15, he tells three of those stories. And again, they are all with a singular purpose, one goal in mind for all three stories. And that was to depict the nature of God's seeking love. Again, our sermon title today is The God Who Seeks and saves. Earlier, before this, and, and I'll leave you with this just to kind of grab a hold of where Jesus is coming from. Earlier on in the Gospels, Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, or the, let me rephrase it, the religious leaders are watching Jesus interact with others. 
And they raise the question, the religious leaders, they, they pull aside Jesus' disciples and they say, why does, why does your teacher, why does he gather with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he gather with the riffraff sinners of society? Luke chapter 530, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus responded this way. He says, it's not the healthy who need a physician, a doctor, but the sick. And then he said, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I hope we all understand this truth. Jesus came not to make the righteous a little more righteous or righteouser. Jesus came and he sought out the helpless, the hopeless, the unrighteous sinner. Again, when I say that, who comes to mind? It should be us. It should be you. And so by now, hopefully you're at Luke chapter 15. Look at verses 1 and 2. This sort of is the catalyst for these stories. How did Jesus get to telling these three stories? Well, we see in verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Very similar to what I just shared with you from uh, the John passage. Now the three parables that we're going to consider today are all going to be in response to that statement by the religious leaders. They're all going to be in response to this idea that the religious leaders were bothered by the fact that Jesus would interact and spend so much time interacting with tax collectors and sinners, again, considered the worst of the worst of society. Now, before we move on, though, to the parables, let's just point out two quick points in those opening verses. Number one, notice how verse one points out the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. That's something we never see the tax collectors and sinners doing in the Gospels around the religious leaders, around the Pharisees, around the scribes, around the members of the Sanhedrin. The tax collectors and sinners never gathered around them. Part of it, they probably wouldn't let them. And the other portion, the tax collectors and sinners didn't want to. Why would I want to come into your presence and you're going to berate me the whole time while I am there? So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see in verse 2 is why the tax collectors and sinners felt comfortable to gather around Jesus but did not feel comfortable gathering around those particular religious leaders. And it's from what the uh, religious leaders say. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. That's why the tax collectors and sinners felt comfortable to come to Jesus, because Jesus welcomed the tax collectors and sinners to come to them. Now, that word is an interesting word. It means, as you would expect it to mean, to invite someone to draw near, obviously. But it goes beyond that. The meaning of it goes beyond just inviting someone. You're, come on in. You can come in. Sit around over there somewhere. And it actually goes to the point of looking for expectantly and with joy. That's how Jesus welcomed the worst of the worst of society. He didn't just say, all right, come on and sit in the back. But he waited. He held service, so to speak, so that he made sure that those particular people were there. He looked expectantly. I'm reminded of when little children look expectantly for Christmas morning. And they wake up to look at the clock to see if they hit that time that mom and dad said they can get out of bed and come downstairs. I'm reminded of young couples that are about to get married. And they count the days down with those little counters and the websites and all those kinds of things. They're looking expectantly for that particular day. That's the way Jesus looked for the tax collector and the sinner. 
He didn't just allow them to come in. He eagerly invited them to come in. He welcomes them. Now, as we move into these three parables, the first parable is found in starting in verse 3. It's about verses 3 to 7. And it's what we call the parable of the lost sheep. It's a familiar parable. I'll read it to you in its entirety. It said, then Jesus told them this parable. He said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or at least in their thinking, they don't need to repent. So we have this first story. We have a shepherd. He realizes that one of his sheep is lost. Notice what that shepherd doesn't do. He doesn't reason, well, I got 99 other ones. I'll be all right, you know, the poor sheep, unfortunately, but at least I have the 99 other ones. He doesn't reason that. Rather, he stops what he is doing, and then he goes and he searches until he finds this lost sheep. And when he does, he joyfully carries it back so that he can interact with everyone and have a party, celebrate that that which was lost has now been found. Jesus tells a second story, starting at verse 8. He says, Or what woman having ten silver coins... And we have coins that are worth a quarter and a dime and a nickel. And they fall and we just leave them because whatever, it's not worth me bending down for. Their silver coins were worth lots of money. He says, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so this woman doesn't reason, well, I lost one, but I have nine others. But she too, just like the shepherd, seeks, look at verse 8, it says she seeks diligently. She searches for the coin, sweeps her floor, which would have been a mixture of sort of hard clay with dirt on top of it. She searches here, she finds it, and she too calls her friends to rejoice with her for having found that which was lost, but now again is found. So both of those instances, that which is lost is of extreme value to the owner, the shepherd and the woman. In both instances, the owner of either the coin or the sheep, they take drastic measures to go and to find that which was lost. And then in both instances that we have here, when they do find that which they were looking for, they rejoice over that fact. They rejoice over the fact that what was lost has now been found and is back in the proper possession of the owner. First two parables. Now we have the third parable. And the third parable is a bit lengthier. It's a little bit longer than those first two that we considered. This is what we commonly call the parable of the prodigal son. No doubt you're familiar with it. The word prodigal means lost. It means wandering. Verse 11, he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but nobody gave him anything. So again, we call this the parable of the prodigal son. As we're going to see today, in reality, this isn't the parable of one son. This is actually the parable of two sons, both of which are lost, perhaps in different ways. But it's the parable of two sons. First, the younger, the younger of the two sons. We see in verse 12 that this younger son approaches his father and he asks from his father his share of the inheritance that is coming to him. Now think about that. What a rude thing to do. What a rude thing to say to your dad. Here, we might translate it this way. Dad, I was hoping you'd be dead by now so that I can have the money that is coming to me. But since you've been so selfish in not dying, can I just have the money now? That's essentially what this younger son is saying here. And what becomes evident is, what is evident is that the son doesn't really care for his father. All he really cares about in his relationship with his dad is what his dad can give to him, the monetary value uh, of his portion of the inheritance. That's what he wants. In fact, he wants to get as far away from his father as he possibly can, as is evidenced in uh, what we've just read. Of course, many of us know the passage, and so we know that the, the son takes off to a far country, gets as far away from his dad as possible, and as it's said in the verse, he squanders all of his dad's property, property in reckless living. The NIV calls it wild living. The King James calls it riotous living. New American Standard calls it loose living. And the Weymouth version calls it debauchery and excess. We could summarize it all this way. He gave himself over to sin. And of course, as is always the case, When we give ourselves over to sin, before long, we begin to feel the consequences and the pain and the difficulty that comes from a life that is given over to sin. In our story, in our parable, that's what he begins to experience. And of course, as we see in the scriptures often, in the midst of that difficulty and in the midst of that pain, the man's mind, the man's heart begins to look for a remedy. Pain hurts. We don't like it. We're walking down the street. We got a rock in our shoe. We stop. We get rid of the rock to get rid of the pain at the same time. And so he begins to look for a remedy. How can I stop the difficulty that I am experiencing? It picks up in verse 17. It says, now, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish with hunger. I will arise. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's his plan. And so, verse 20, he arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they all began to celebrate. 
Now, earlier, I made reference to this idea, or at least I desire to make reference to this idea. He began to turn his, the remedy, remember I said earlier, he had sort of this remedy. And we might look at that, and we might think, well, he's repenting. He realizes the error of his ways, and he's repenting from the areas, errors of those ways. But I'm going to suggest to you, though he began to turn, began to change, he didn't turn far enough. Because as we see here, it's that you might say, well, sure, he turned to his dad, all, all is good. But notice how he turns to his father and what kind of relationship his father would have liked to have had with him, a father and son relationship. But what kind of relationship does the man seek with his dad, an employer and employee relationship? And that's not what the dad desires at all. And so he's turning toward good things, but he hasn't turned far enough yet. There still needs to be something that goes on inside of him. We might summarize his reasoning this way. Him saying, I certainly can't return to a father-son relationship considering all that I have done, but maybe I could be a good worker for him. Perhaps I can earn my keep for him, and I'll work hard, and he'll pay, recompense me for my efforts. Maybe I can clean my life up a little. What the son is realizing, what I think many people realize as they begin the process on their journey to the Lord, and some don't go far enough, but because the pain hurts, what do we do? We begin to commit ourselves to a better solution. So for the son, it was to go back and labor for his dad. For many of us, you know what, I'm going to stop partying in that particular way, or I'm going to stop getting involved in these particular things. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to go in a new direction. For this fella, I'm going to become my dad's employee. Verse 20, notice what it says. It says, as he's making his way back, he's rehearsed all that he wanted to say. It says that his dad sees him still a long way off. That tells me that the dad is out there looking for his son, scanning their horizon, hoping that his son will come. Verse 20 says, he arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his father felt compassion for him. His father ran to him, kissed him, and embraced him. Now, the son starts in with his speech. Verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, notice what happens, though. The father doesn't even acknowledge the son's speech. He doesn't say, you know, I really appreciate you saying that. I was hoping you'd say that. He doesn't even really acknowledge the son's speech. In actuality, what he does is he calls his actual hired servants, which this son wants to become, and he says to them, restore this man to sonship. And we see that in the verses. He says, bring the best robe for my son and put it on him. That's verse 22. He says, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, also in verse 22. And then in verse 23, he instructs them to go get the fattened calf and to kill the fattened calf so that they can have a feast and a celebration. And then finally in verse 24, why? Why does the dad respond in this particular way? Because that son of mine that was dead is alive again. He was lost and he is found, and so they begin to celebrate. What a beautiful story, isn't it, that we read here? It's not done, though. You like it right now. Just keep waiting. I got more. Like the guy on, uh, you know, ShamWow, you know. But wait, there's more. Um, there's still more here. Look at verse 25. Because what did I say earlier? This isn't the story of one son. It's the story of two lost sons. 
All right, now we might not catch that, but we should. Look at verse 25. It says, now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, well, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the son was angry and he refused to go in. And so his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Again, this is not the story of one lost son, but of two lost sons. And the other lost son here is the older son. The one that was out working when his brother arrived. The one who was completely of unaware, unaware of all that kind of went down, all that had taken place. The one who comes home, hears the music, hears the celebration... And has to pull another servant aside and ask what is going on, only to have him self-informed, your brother who took off has returned and your dad has thrown a party for him. And you see here that, what does that do to the older son? It angers the older son. Notice in verse 30, when he talks to his dad about it, he doesn't even refer to him as his brother. He refers to him as this son of yours. Like, I'm done with that guy. He's angry here. And notice it says in verse 28, he refuses to go in. Not going in there and being a part of that. And so what does the father do? Remember the title of our sermon, The God Who Seeks and Saves. Remember, this is a parable. This is a story designed to help Jesus' listeners understand a singular purpose, which is the seeking nature of our God. So what does the father do in this portion of the scenario? Well, he does the same thing that the shepherd did. And he does the same thing that the woman with the lost coin did. And he does the same thing that he did with the younger son when he went out and he met him before he came into the city. What's the father do now with the older son? He goes to him. He seeks him. We read this in verse 28. It says, and his father came out and entreated him. That word entreated means he begs him. Can you imagine? The father who doesn't owe anybody anything, he doesn't owe a younger son anything, he doesn't owe an older son anything, goes out to the older son and begs him, please, son, please come back into the house. Come into the house and celebrate with me. My son that had been dead, in my mind, is alive again. He begs his son to come in. Verse 29, the son keeps resisting, which means the father has to keep begging. We read in verse 29, the son answers the father, look, these many years I've served you, have never disobeyed you, you never gave me anything. You give him a fattened calf, you didn't even give me a little teeny goat to celebrate with my friends. But you give that to the son who spent it all on prostitutes and so on. He blows up at his dad. I think we could, we could all picture the scene. I imagine voices are raised, particularly the older son's voice, yelling at his father. And he says, he says there, these many years I have served you. I'm going to add there, and for what? I served you for what? 
The NIV translates it this way, all these years I've been slaving for you, the NIV says. Now here's the important point to see. The older son has the same wrong understanding of the relationship that the father desires to have with him as the younger son had. So the younger son, I'm not going back to be a son anymore. I'm going back to be an employee. This older son's concept of his relationship with his dad, not that he's an employee, but that he's a slave of his father. He's even further removed from where the son, uh, the older, excuse me, the younger son anticipated he could be. He has a wrong understanding of the relationship that God, or in this case, his father desires to have from him. So what do we learn from these three parables. The first thing that we learn is this, that God is the seeker. The lost sheep didn't seek out the shepherd. The lost coin didn't search out its owner, and neither of these sons searched out an unhindered and sweet relationship with their father. Our God is the one that seeks each one of us. And Easter Sunday morning and all of the events that lead up to Easter Sunday morning are evidence of that reality. Go through the scriptures with me. It was the Lord that sought out Adam and Eve after they hid themselves following the fall, wasn't it? It was the Lord that called out to and initiated relationship with Abram. It was the Lord who met Moses in the bush that burned but was not consumed. It was the Lord that sent Nathan the prophet to David to, to draw David back after his sin. It was the Lord who repeatedly sent his prophets to his wayward people. It was the Lord that called Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, and invited himself to his house to stay. It was the Lord that stopped Paul in his tracks and called him to himself. Again and again and again in scripture, we see it is always the Lord that is the one that is doing the seeking. That's the first thing that we learn. So important for us to really just nail down God is the seeker. The second thing that we, we learn is what it cost the seeker in each one of those scenarios. So the shepherd in all likelihood figured out that one of his hundred sheep were missing that night as he's about to put them all in the pen for the evening. And so what they would do is they would roam around in the fields, essentially sharing the fields, and then they would have these little pens, and they would bring, they'd put them in the pens, the shepherd would lay himself down on the doorway of the pen so that no sheep can go wandering off in the middle of the night. And as they're making their way into the pen, one, two, three, and he's counting them out, and he realizes one is missing. Really? i got to put my shoes back on and my jacket back and go all the way back out and wander around and find the sheep that is missing. That cost this particular shepherd something, but he did it knowing the danger that that sheep out by itself would face if left by itself all night. But he does it. It cost him something. The woman, she lights a lamp. She sweeps her whole... She didn't turn on a light switch, by the way. She lights a lamp and all that goes on with that. Sweeps her whole house. Again, verse 8 says she seeks diligently for her coin on her dirt-covered floor. And her persistence pays off, and she finds it. And then we have the father. The father who had to endure hearing his son say to him, I wish you were dead, in so many words. The father who waits for his son daily, scans the horizon for him, hoping 
that this is the day he'll catch a glimpse of his son coming back to him. The father who, when he finally sees his wayward son, takes upon himself the disgrace of his son, hitches up his robe, which they, wealthy men, older men, wouldn't show their knees in any way, and yet he hitches up his robe so that he can run and not be tripped up by the robe. And then he gets out there and he encounters his son. He takes upon himself the disgrace that was due to his son. Then, while he's out there, he covers the son's shame. Remember, the son came back to him with tattered clothes. It was all messed up from the life that he had been living. And he replaces that with a robe and a ring and shoes on his finger. And then the father walks back into town. And as he walks back into town, people aren't going to say, look at this loser kid. Look at the slop that he's become. Look at the mess that he's become. If anyone's going to be made fun of in this scenario, it's going to be the dad. Look at this guy. They could take advantage of him like this. He lets his kids walk all over him. And he, if anyone's going to be mocked, it's going to be the dad in this scenario. It cost the father something to love his son in this way. And that's just the first son. You still got the second son. He's out there begging him to come back in and trying to reason with him. I think by this time I would have lost it as dad. You know what? That's it. Forget it. Both of you just leave. All right? Come back in a week when I've settled down a little bit. And yet he goes out to the older son, and he shows him mercy as well. All three of the examples, four of the examples that we have here demonstrate the costly way in which God loved those that are his by sending his son to pay the penalty of our sin. And so, through these parables, we've learned that it's God that is the seeker. We see what it cost for him to do that seeking. And then the third thing that we see that is associated in each one of these stories is the joy that comes when that which is lost is found. You'll notice every one of the parables ends with a party. Isn't that interesting? Also, take notice, verse 5. How many times words like joy and celebration are used? Verse 5, the shepherd, it says, joyfully puts uh, the sheep on his shoulder and carries it back. Verse 6, he invites others to come rejoice with him over this found sheep. Verse 7, we have the statement that there is uh, joy in heaven over a sinner that rejoices. Verse 9, moving on to the parable of the coin. We see when she finds a coin, she invites others to Rejoice with her. Verse 10, we see there's joy before the angels when a sinner repents. Going down to verse 23, we see the father calling others to join him and celebrate the return of his son. Verse 24, we see everyone beginning to celebrate the return of his son. And then finally in verse 32, we see the father explaining to the older son that they had to celebrate and be glad that his lost brother has been found. And so again and again and again through these three parables, we see Jesus's emphasis on joy and celebration when that which is lost is found. God is the seeker. We see what it cost him to seek. And then we see the joy that comes as a result of the seeking. Final thing that we see in these three parables is a lesson for us uh, on grace versus merit. The sheep contribute nothing to being found. The coin, obviously, contributes nothing to being found. And as we took note, neither of these two sons actually contribute anything to being in the type of relationship that the father desired to be in with both of them. 
This last parable, more so than perhaps the first two, it wonderfully magnifies the grace of God, even as it magnifies the fruitless attempts of men. And that's why I think it's a perfect parable for us, or series of parables for us, to consider on Easter morning. Again, track with me very quickly. The younger son had grown sick of his sin. I think more properly we might say sick of the consequences of his sin. He then goes on to devise a plan. He goes on to devise his remedy, even as many of us did in our journey with the Lord. I, I know in my personal life and a lot of people that I know here uh, from this church, many of us, we, things, God began to stir within us. And we sort of had that I'm going to turn over a new leaf and become a good person sort of experience only to come to our end of ourselves and say, I can't do it. I'm reminded of Paul in Romans chapter 7. When I determined to do what I wanted to do, I didn't do it. The things I didn't want to do, that's what I kept doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. We, we go through this process. We think we're going to clean up our lives. We grow tired of our sin and all that comes with it. We try to clean up our lives. But the process of repentance goes beyond realizing we are sinners, and it goes beyond trying to clean up our lives. The process of repentance comes when we come to the end of ourselves. When we come to that place where we realize there is nothing that I can do, there's nothing that I can contribute to this relationship between myself and the Lord. It all has to come from him. This man was not all the way there yet. Again, he thinks, well, maybe I could work hard and become a hired hand. The father says, I don't want a hired hand. I want a relationship with you. And I want to have that restored, as perhaps it once was. The man's grace. The last thing that I want to show you is this. Remember what the son had planned to say? The son had planned to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me on as your hired hand. What the son actually says is this, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, something changed in this man. He's not even thinking about doing something that would merit or earn God's favor with him. He's thrown that out altogether. And what was in between those two steps? It was the mercy and the grace of his dad. The mercy and the grace of God or seeking God, changed him. I remember in my life when God really impressed upon me the magnificence of his grace for me. And here's the interesting thing. I'd already been a Christian for 10 years. 10 years already. I was saved. I was going to heaven. But I was reading a book, simple book. We have a bunch here. You might want to pick it up for yourself. I would recommend it, actually. It's called Why Grace Changes Everything. Chuck Smith wrote it. If you know anything about Chuck Smith's writing style, very simple. People like me can pick it up, understand it. I don't have to wrestle with a dictionary or anything like that. And I read this particular book, and I began to meditate on the scriptures that Chuck was sharing. And 10 years into my faith, I realized just how magnificent and wonderful the grace of God actually is. And that's what this guy he comes to experience, and what caused him to experience it? The actions of his father. His father came to him. His father said, son, shh, just don't say anything. 
Let me get those old clothes off of you. Let me put a new one on you. Son, you need shoes for your feet. Look at your feet. They're a mess. Put a ring on your finger so that everyone knows you're my son. That's what the father does. We almost would expect, because as I said earlier, the son didn't go far enough in his repentance. We would almost expect the father, I really need this kid to know just what a louse he is. So that he'll cry out to me. We almost expect the father to say, list, let's, let's just go through all the ways you hurt me. And all the things that you did wrong and how you squandered your money and how foolish you were. We almost expect the father to do that. If we really want to prove to this kid he has nothing to offer to the relationship, let's just give it to him. Lay it all out there. And yet, when the son comes back, ready to confess his sin, the father doesn't even make mention of his sin. When the son son comes to the father with this big plan to be a hired servant, the father seemingly ignores it altogether and talks to him about being his son. He runs to him, he embraces him, he kisses him, and he gives him all those things that I just mentioned to you. And that grace changes that son. And that's what changes you and I. Amen? It's the grace of our Heavenly Father. It's his grace. And so when we began today, as I prayed, I pray that each one of us, whether we've been a Christian for a little while or a super long period of time, that today we would get a sense of the magnitude of the grace of God. Just how wonderful and how sweet that actually is in each of our hearts and lives. And I suspect there's some of us that are here today that have never begun a relationship with God. We're much like that younger son. We're turning to God. We're here. We're realizing, man, my life's a mess. i got to clean it up a little bit. We're journeying back toward the Father, but we're journeying back toward the Father with a wrong understanding of the relationship he desires to have. We're journeying back to the Father, ready to work our way into his good graces, ready to work our way into heaven. You'll never be able to do so. You'll never be able to do so. None of us can add anything to what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. What changes a man or a woman is the grace of God. And my prayer for each of us is that we will rest in, the, in God's favor. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, that's good. Good for us to know. Good for us to consider. Good for us to rest in. And Lord, I know that there are some that are worried about a message of grace. If we just preach grace, people will go crazy. They'll go wild. They'll do all kinds of things and just say, well, God's grace. And yet we see in your scriptures, it's grace that changes us. It's grace which transforms our hearts. It's grace which brings us to the end of ourselves. Lord, you're such a loving and merciful and gracious God that you sought us out while we were yet sinners. Lord, we're grateful that you did. We thank you that your son came to this earth, died a horrible death, and was raised back to life victoriously. And Father, this morning, many of us in this room, we remind ourselves again, we recommit ourselves again, that all that we are in Christ Jesus is because of the work of Christ Jesus. 
Lord, we rest not in our efforts, but in your grace. And Father, anyone that's here that doesn't know that, would you work in their hearts this morning? Would you bring them to that place, we ask. In Jesus' name.